Hey now, welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo, and today we're talking about healthcare law. That's right, we're talking about the law as it relates to doctors, nurses, healthcare facilities, practices, and institutions. What is there to know? Well, there's a lot to know, and we're going to cover as much of it as we can on today's show. My guest is Melinda Malecki, and she's a healthcare attorney. She's going to share with us the inside BS on how doctors and nurses come to become doctors and nurses at a specific facility, what their contracts look like, what the nuances are that goes into running those facilities. Please join me in welcoming Melinda to the Inside BS Show. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. All right, so... When you were a little baby, you were hanging out, playing with your friends, and somebody was a doctor, somebody was a nurse, and then you said, no, 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 you can't do that because it's outside the scope of your job responsibilities, and that's how you became a healthcare lawyer, right? No. 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 (laughs) Melinda, tell us, how did you get into this role as a healthcare attorney? Well, I worked in healthcare for several years. Um... Actually, my last job in healthcare that was non-legal was in uh, Rush as an organ transplant coordinator. I was oh, one wow. of those people that went out and asked families for the donations of their loved ones' um, organs, and then coordinated that, and then flew them back to Chicago where they would be transplanted. And in that position, I realized that I really liked working in healthcare. But I did not want to be in a clinical position, so I thought I would go to law school and be a healthcare attorney, and that's what I did: healthcare hospital attorney. Okay, I want to I want to really quickly ask you about that previous job because that is it's a it's a really noble calling first and foremost. But your heart has to be in your throat every time you're having one of those conversations, right? Yes. Um, It was really a privilege to have that job. Um, And what I always say about that is that if you ever lose your faith in mankind, in the human spirit, when you're doing that job and you're asking families to make a donation to someone they don't know in the midst of the worst thing that can ever happen to them, and they do it, that really restores my faith in humanity. Sure. And I saw a lot of that. Um, yes, it's, it's high stress, but well worth it. And it, it's, it was really an opportunity and a privilege for me to meet those people. That's, it's just fantastic. Well, thank you on behalf of all the people whose lives were saved for doing that. When did you, so how would they send you to a place where they knew there was like, how did you, how did you find the organs in the first place? Like how would well, they, like there was, there was like, how do you know, you don't know when an accident is going to happen and, and no, somebody's going to be a good candidate, right? You don't, you don't, but there are laws that guide hospitals about what they need to do in case of a death as it relates to organ and tissue donation. And they need to follow those laws and they notify their organ procurement agency and the agency then takes over and decides how to coordinate an organ removal. Um, And in this country, we do have a united network for organ sharing. And so if you need a transplant, you're entered into that system and prioritized. And so if, you know, whoever needs the organ the most and who matches the organ the most, that's how it's coordinated regionally and nationally. 
and there's there's a specific amount of time when they have to. I guess the right word is harvest the organ, right? Well, it's they, actually pref it, the preferable word is recover, recover, and, okay. and not harvest. So, yeah, but so, um, yes, there is a time for each organ and tissue of how long you can um, keep them viable. And yeah. so. Who has that initial conversation with the family? Does the doctor come out and say, unfortunately, your loved one, you know, is, you know, they're, they're not they're not going to make it. I noticed on the driver's license that he was an organ donor. Would you like us to contact the agency? They they do that first. Then you get the phone call. Is that how that works? Um, actually, the, it can be the doctor. It can be the nurse. It can be anybody on the, the team that's taking care of the patient. But like you said, these are sudden, unexpected deaths, uh, brain deaths, to not, you know, be too technical, but, you know, it's, there's an injury to the brain that allows the body to continue functioning as long as it's oxygenated. So yes, they make the initial assessment, but then they contact the organ procurement agency, who then takes over and will talk with the family. It's time once again for another Sandrowski Business Minute, and we're here with Jody Mersinger, and she's going to help us with this question. Jody, everybody asks me about succession planning and their business. What happens if the owner retires? What happens if the owner dies? What are we talking about when we're talking about succession planning, and what should people be thinking about? Right. So when planning for the succession of management, generally it's advisable to have some kind of plan in place to incentivize your key employees. This may include um, phantom stock plans. Phantom. This may include phantom stock plans, for instance. Um, also, we advise when you are doing succession planning and management is that each head of the department should have a written plan of what they do on a day-to-day -day basis and what should be done in the event of um, an untimely departure of that head of the department. Um, also, key man insurance is, is helpful in the event that an untimely, in the, also key man insurance should be evaluated in the event of an untimely departure of a key person to replace any disruption in revenue. Uh, with respect to the succession planning of the ownership of the company. We advise to have a buy-sell agreement or some buy-sell provisions in you know, your operating agreement, for instance. Uh, this, first of all, allows you to contemplate what you want to have happen in certain events. There are trigger events that you can contemplate, such as death or disability or retirement, and what you want to happen with regard to your shares whether it's redeemed from the company or uh, a third party is allowed to purchase it or whether another shareholder will purchase it. And these provisions can also include financing provisions. Um, you can also evaluate insurance to assist in the buyout with regard to the shares. Um, but succession planning ahead of time is important. Um, also, you know, an owner besides having some of these documents in place, you know, five to 10 years out from when they may want to retire should, you know, we'll be looking at their options, whether it's going to be sale of a company, whether it's going to be use of 
an ESOP, getting the employees involved, or whether they'll be hiring from the outside with regards to the management or from the inside. Um, and also there's always you know, family options that may be considered if it's a family business and gifting and so forth. But in, in all cases, the, we advise a company to have a board of directors that will assist in decision making so that if something does happen to a key person or the main owner, that there is a board that is assisting with the decision making. All right. So if you have a business and you're worried about the future of your business, you need a succession plan. The person to call is Jody Mersinger. I want you to give her a call at 866-717-1607, 866-717-1607. Sandrowski Corporate Advisors, an accounting firm with a different perspective. Okay. So you were, you were in that role and mm-hmm. after, uh, you know, you decided to go back to law school you graduate from law school, and that's how you got into uh, practicing for, uh, you know, practicing in healthcare law where you mm-hmm. practice now? Right. I graduated from law school, and I became a hospital lawyer. That was my first job. I was general counsel at West Suburban Medical Center in Oak Park. And I've been working in, those, in that role, in those capacities, for the last almost 30 years now. Um, doing that type of work, outsource general counsel or outsource risk management. But we primarily, my partner Aileen Brooks and I, primarily represent providers, physicians, nurses, um, advanced practitioners, anybody who's a chiropractor, any healthcare provider is what we do. All right. Explain to folks, because the, the average person walking around, even probably most of the people who are professionals who are listening and watching this show they don't know what the relationship between like a doctor and a hospital is or a doctor and maybe a large practice group is. So explain to all of us, what are the different types of work relationships that doctors will have with either a healthcare facility like a hospital or with a large practice group? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. These days, mostly what the consumer is going to see uh, especially, let me use an example of a system, a large health system where, you know, if you have health insurance, you're probably going to a system to get your treatment. What you're going to see in that situation will be mostly physicians who are employed by the health system. They have an employment agreement. They get a paycheck, a predictable paycheck. That's the majority of what you're going to see. Some of them may be independent contractors where they have a contract with the hospital to provide services, meaning they're not necessarily employed. They're not getting W-2 forms at the end of the year, but they have a consistent contractual relationship. So that's 99% of what the consumer is going to see. And those contracts are carefully negotiated between the physician and the institution that the physician works for. And that's what we do. So you and you're on you're on the physician side. You're on the nurse practitioner side. I would imagine you probably do do physicians assistants too. All of those, uh, yeah. Any yeah. provider, yes. We're on that side for contract negotiations and contract reviews. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now let's talk a little bit about that because I think people would be interested in hearing about those types of contracts. So. 
if you're, let's say you're just a, I, I shouldn't say just, that's a terrible qualifier. Let's say you're a general practitioner and you're employed by Baptist Health, right? Um, do you have an exclusive arrangement with Baptist Health if you're, if you're contracted to them or, or not contracted, if you're employed by them? Or can you work like on a Saturday for, um, you know, a, a private practice, you know, doing scrapes and cuts and broken bones? That's a good question. Um, physicians ask that question all the time. The answer is that the majority uh, of contracts want the physician to be exclusive unless it's otherwise negotiated. There are physicians who want to do moonlighting on the side. Uh, maybe they want to work somewhere else on the weekends or work shifts someplace else. That generally is not in the agreement. It needs to be put into the agreement so that they can do it. Okay. And then that that particular doc, let's say, who is you know Monday through Friday at uh, at a big health system, they're they're covered under. And I'm asking, I'm not I'm not I'm not stating it. Are they covered under the health system's malpractice insurance? And then they have to have their own separately, or does the health system's insurance cover them? The health system's insurance covers them for what they do in that job. Okay. Yes, right. generally they do not have their own insurance. Okay. So now let's take another scenario where I'm employed by a big system. I'm a, I'm a you know, general practitioner and I want to do two weeks a year for Doctors Without Borders. Do I have to negotiate that into my contract? Is that my vacation time? How does that work? It could go either way. So yes, you do have to bring it up. What we recommend is when we do a contract review, we make a list of all of the points that need to be what I call clarified with the employer and we recommend that be done in an email and we help write that email so that we have a paper trail of what the physician or the provider asked the employer and what the answer was so that if there's ever any ambiguity in the future about the contract any interpretation and it's not clear in there we can pull out our email paper trail and show that this was just this is what we asked and this is what the answer was because a lot of people don't know this but contract law in general is governed by what's on the page. So let's say you sign a contract today and six months down the road you're in court debating the contract. The judge will look at that and say, well, there's the answer. You may not like the answer, but that's the answer because it's on the page. The only time you get to bring in other evidence in a contract case, a contract dispute, is if the judge can't figure out the answer because it's so ambiguous or it's just silent. So that's why better to get everything in there, but if you can't, just have some documentation on the side. Sure, sure. No, that's that's good advice for all all contract law. All contracts, <laughs> you know, it doesn't have right. to be yeah, it doesn't have to be just exclusive to healthcare. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about nurses now. What are what are some of the working relationships with nurses? Uh, are are they exclusive to healthcare practices if if they're, you know, if they're hired as an employee generally? Um, advanced practice nurses generally are. They ha usually have a contract. But nurses who are staff nurses, bedside nurses typically do not have a contract. They're hired at will. Um, they have a a salary and a, a schedule. They work shifts. But the contracts that we review are for advanced practice, nurse practitioners. Okay. PAs. So, and when you're, yeah, when you're, and when you're saying advanced practice, you mean people who are in the ICU or in a specialty care unit. Is that right? No, no? advanced practice nurses are nurses who have um, extensive training beyond nursing school. 
and uh, they have a master's degree and they meet certain requirements to be, some of them can be licensed to practice now on their own. Um, sometimes they have a collaborating physician, but it depends on what state you're in. In Illinois, they, the legislation has changed so that they, some can practice on their own, set up their own practices. They typically will have an agreement. Okay. All right. So now let's move into some, some, a doctor who decides he's going to hang his own shingle, right? Or she, he or she is going to ha- hang their own shingle. They're going to go out on their own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're at, for the, for the beginning part of their practice, they're, while they're building up their practice, they're at the mercy of whatever insurance they take and they show mm-hmm. up on a, on a website somewhere. Mm-hmm. This particular type of doc, if they, they, can they work part-time at a, at a large system while they're building up their practice? Sure. And, and often how does that's that, a good idea. And how does that, how does that work? Would they, they be like, would a, just, would they get they a day negotiate. rate or... Yeah, they would negotiate a part-time position, start ramping up their practice, and I often recommend that, that if you're starting out on your own and you want to do, you don't have to put all your eggs in one basket, if you want to work part-time in one place or another place and and start your own practice, you can do that. What the employer is going to care about is whether or not the services the physician is providing are competitive to what the employer is paying for. But if that's okay. not the case, that's a way to ramp up. Okay, great, mm-hmm. great. Now, what are some of the what are some of the real um, sticking points or the points where you, as the as the attorney representing the doc or representing the nurses, where you have to roll up your sleeves and you you have to say, "Listen, we got to really we got to really work on this because this is this is going to be a difficult point of mm-hmm. negotiation." What are what are some of the most difficult parts to negotiate? Let's take doctors first, and then talk about nurses after. Okay, and they're going to be similar. So if we we take the doctors, it would also apply the nurses. So let's say compensation is of course number one. Everybody cares what the compensation is. So we have to agree on the compensation. But beyond that, there are a few points that are sticking points that people should be careful about. One of them is the non-compete agreements, the restrictive covenants. Typically, an employer will come out of the box with a very burdensome non-compete, and we want to negotiate that so it's not that burdensome. We want, If we have to have one, which we usually do, we want to narrow it down to the smallest radius around so that, so that the physician or the provider can work still work. You don't want to have your hands strapped, okay, that you can't work when the job is over. So that's that's very important. The second thing is we want to make sure that the malpractice insurance is covered. And then this is for everybody, but it's misleading in contracts. The contract will have a term that says the term of this agreement starts May 9th, 2022, and goes for two years and then automatically renews every year after that. That's called an evergreen. It looks like everybody's living happily ever after, but reality is that there will be an early termination provision in the contract that says it can be terminated at any time upon so many days' notice. It gives you the technical equivalent of that notice period. That has to be carefully looked at, and it can be easily missed. If somebody did not have their contract reviewed by an attorney who does these, you could miss that and then you have a problem. Because let's say you're, you're out in, in business for 20 years, you've been practicing and you miss that. And let's say you have a 30-day agreement because the termination is 30 days. 
what are you going to do then if the employer says, here's your 30-day notice, bye-bye? Yeah, that's no, that's an excellent point. But that only kicks in after the initial term, so so that you don't. No, it, it kicks in anytime. Anytime. So yeah. so basically, a two year contract is a thirty day contract. Exactly. If you don't see it. That's yeah. right. Technically, that's, yes, and very easy. They're to so that. sneaky. Look at how sneaky they are. That's crazy. Well, you know, if you're draft, if I was drafting for them, I'd be doing the same. <laughs> you know, you yeah. try to get your best deal. Yeah. So. No, I I understand. I understand. Now, let's go back to non-competes for a minute, right? Isn't Illinois like an employee-friendly state when it comes to non-competes? Friendlier now, since January, yes. Um, there is new legislation about how non-competes must be constructed. and You have to make a certain amount of money. There has to be consideration or money for the non-compete. But you still want to make sure you carefully review that because when you leave a job, you don't want to be stuck with things that tie your hands, like non-competes. And then there's there, there. I've seen language in there that I can't believe is legal. And any contract yeah. that I that I've signed, I strike it out, and nobody ever fights me on it. And the language says that the undersigned. I'm I'm just going to paraphrase because I'm not a lawyer, but the undersigned agrees that they can uh, they can make a living without having to work yes. in this profession, which yes. is ludicrous. You went to medical school. You became a doctor. Why would you ever sign that? Because the employer wants to be able to point to that language when they try to enforce it when you're arguing about it later they'll say but judge he he agreed to that he agreed this wasn't going to be yeah, he's a carpenter too he can he can go build a house yeah sure yeah. <laughs> okay. that's in there for a reason no i un i understand but when in your experience because you negotiate these you're you're going to go through and redline that strike that right out and i'm going to try yes i'm going to try to but the scope of the non-compete and is what and also why should you have a non-compete if you're let go without cause? Right. Should you be, you know, saddled with that? We we would try not to have that if you, if you're terminated without cause. And then don't they they have to? Well, they don't have to, but you want them to restrict it to a certain geographic radius so that it, you know they can go they can go work in Schaumburg if you know, and that that they shouldn't be it shouldn't be statewide, right? As small as possible, yes. Right. The yeah. geographic radius. Yeah, I mean, because that's that seems to it, you know a lot of the a lot of the law would seem to you would want it to follow common sense, but I can understand why they would draft it so that it's as favorable to them as possible. Melinda, do you see physicians signing up to work for facilities without having a lawyer review their contracts? Yes, um, in fact, on our website we have quite a few articles about contracting, and one of them is called. I did not have my contract reviewed, and now I have to pull a rabbit out of a hat. And yes, I do see it. And what's surprising to me is, especially physicians who have been in business for a long time and are high up in the hierarchy in, in the organizations where they work and have a lot at stake, including money, don't get their contract reviewed. And then when something happens... It's, a, it's hard to do anything about it because they've signed it and it's enforceable. So when you look at what doctors make and what it costs to do a contract review, it's not prudent to not have your contract reviewed. I am not a doctor, but I have every contract that I'm going to sign reviewed by our attorney before I sign it because I don't, I just don't want to, I, I don't, I don't know what I don't know. 
And that's, that's right. why we that's that's why people hire me because they don't know what they don't know. So that's exactly. why I hire a lawyer. <laughs> that's right. You're, that's right. Yes, it's just not smart. Let's so let's let's talk about another thing that I've seen physicians do in my travels, and this is this is not related to to employment. This is now a physician goes out on her own. Let's say she starts her own practice, and um, she's. Uh, it's going to, everything's going to be great. And she, she knows that the patients are going to come and she's setting up her own practice and she hires a great office manager, right? But the office manager signs contracts for equipment. They sign leases, they sign, or maybe the physician is signing all this stuff. They don't have lawyers review that stuff. When some, when a physician goes out on their own, are you the person they would call to review most of those contracts? Maybe absent the real estate lease, but the, 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 no, we do full scope. We do full scope services for physicians. If you want to set up a practice, we review leases. We, we review everything. We just don't do malpractice defense, but if you're a healthcare provider or practitioner that we want you to be our client. So we provide all of those. All right, so give us give us the handful of contracts that a physician going out on his or her own should should make sure without fail they they have to be reviewed by an attorney. What what are those contracts? Leases for sure. Um, service agreements where they may be providing services to a third party like a hospital or some sort of healthcare provider for sure. Um, the payer contracts they can have reviewed. Uh, if they want to. Um, Billers are pretty good at doing that. But if they want to have those payer agreements, I would say that's the third one that they should have reviewed. And that's for people who don't know, is that what, that's with the insurance company, right? Yes. The payers. So when you say payer contracts, that's with all the, all the insurance companies. How does, uh, how does a doc figure out what insurance they should and shouldn't take? Um, It's not always up to them. They try to get as much as as many contacts as they can, but they may be limited by what the provi- what the payer with the insurance company will contract for. Um, you know, there's so many different payers. There's Medicare and, and Medicaid um, payers. There's it's it's a vast. I mean, healthcare has so many payers involved in it. That's why medical billers. They know a lot about what payers will pay for, and they can help a practice negotiate those agreements. Okay. All right. Great. Now, I have one more question related to the, the well, one more question until you answer it, and I'll have three more about that. But one more question related to the the actual contracts themselves. So here, so I live in Miami, and Mount Sinai Medical Center here in Miami is uh, notorious for bringing in these like rock star doctors for specific practice areas. They have now one for uh, you know in the in the cardiac unit. They have uh, they have another one for like men's health and urology. Uh, they have another one for breast cancer, and they recruit them from all over the country. What is different when when a when a health system goes out and they specifically look for and the the let's take the cardiac one they they recruited this person from uh, from New York City brought him down. What is different about for you about negotiating the agreement for somebody like that who's coming into a community from outside compared to just the average you know doc who's going to come in and, and you know do rounds or whatever in a hospital? Okay. Um- well, I'm looking at the big picture for somebody who's moving, and 
in that picture, we're not just looking at the comp, the base compensation. We're looking at the future compensation, and we're looking at the benefits and the perks that are attached to bringing somebody, as you call them, a rock star, bringing them from far away. We're going to be looking at relocation costs, what are the bonuses, what, what is the total comp involved in this. And especially somebody who's been in business or been practicing for years, when they make a move to a new job, they're not just looking at that move. They're going to look beyond that move. What's the next job going to be after that? And how do we incorporate that into these current negotiations? So in other words, it's not just getting in. It's how do you get out? Because someone who's a rock star is going to be recruited again. So looking at the big picture, we have to take more into consideration than we normally would. Yeah, no. And do you do you see uh, contractual obligations for these docs to do a lot of public relations stuff too? Because like here, I, I, I just know my own personal experience, Mount Sinai, they have these guys on TV. It seems like every week they're doing some commentary on something on television mm-hmm. or they're cutting commercials for the hospital or they're out at events or they're doing... Uh, community service speaking engagements mm-hmm. to help people. So is that something they're contractually obligated to do or are they just doing it out of the goodness of their heart? No, generally it's part of the agreement that they will help with marketing and community relations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that it, to me is a really interesting aspect of all of this. And I talking to the CEO at Mount Sinai, he he says that these practice areas, the the reason that they did it was because of the heavily, they heavily market to Central and South America and people, affluent people will fly into Miami to have their bypass here at Mount Sinai because this mm-hmm. particular surgeon is going to be doing the, the bypass surgery. Mm-hmm. Now, and, you know, I said that was the last question. Actually, I did think of one more. What about, like, is there a... Like from a productivity standpoint, is it written into their contract that they have to do X number of procedures every month or a week or a year? Like I, I you know, I don't even, I, I wouldn't even be able to tell you. How, do, how does that work? No, it's not written that way. Um, they may get an incentive or a bonus compensation if they perform highly or they or they're very high in quality or both but it's not you have to do so many procedures per year okay all right and uh, because i could imagine there'd be liability concerns with you telling the person you got to do six bypass surgeries in a you know in a in a or something the the guy's gonna be dead on his feet ethical to do that right right Mm -hmm. yeah so but they, but they do. I, I, I've talked to the these hospital administrators. They are thinking that way, though. There, it may not be ethical, but that's that is the way they. Well, think. They're, they're hoping. They're hoping <laughs> yeah. that they're going to have the procedures. Yes, yeah. right. Um, and now, let's talk a little bit about because I know if I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up with you because everybody wants to know this. Talk, talk about the economics of the medical industry today as it relates to the individuals who are in these positions, doctors and nurses. Everybody thinks that doctors are affluent. And by and large, I'm sure they they do well. But if they're if they're on a salary, they can't potentially make as much as a physician who owns his or her own practice. Help us help us with that. Well, who's going to do better? Um, if you ask today, 
there's not much desire to set up a private practice because you take on the headaches of managing your own practice. You pay your own staff, you pay your own benefits, you pay your own malpractice insurance, and the reimbursement is not that great. So, you know, if you bill an insurance company $100 for a service, you're probably not getting $100 back. So having your own practice, although you're independent, you, it can be lucrative, but it's a lot of work, as opposed to someone who becomes employed, makes a good salary, predictable salary, benefits, possible bonuses, and doesn't have any of the headaches. So what I see are a small group of physicians who are entrepreneurial, very small group that want to set up their own, and the majority are people coming out of school who want to be employed. Oh, okay, interesting. And what is the what is the market like today for physicians in in the area that you, within which you work? Is it is it is it competitive? Can physicians do well? Yes. Or is it okay? Is there a shortage of physicians? Or yes, in certain specialties, yes, there is. What and so, depending on your specialty. You may have some more negotiation power, depending on what you're bringing to the table. And that varies from region to region as well. Mm, okay. All right. Is it, um, is it the same for nurses? Because for a very long time, there seemed to be a shortage of nurses. Every article you read, there was a shortage of nurses. What is the market like for nurses? Today? Oh, it's nurses can write their own ticket. Um, there is a shortage of nurses. They can be compensated very well. They have a, a, many types of positions that they can be involved in. Now we have the traveling nurse who, you know, in COVID could travel from state to state. They get paid very well per hour, great benefits if they want. Um, it, it is a good degree to have, a good training to have, and the potential to go beyond. Say you go to college for four years, you get a bachelor's in nursing, you can continue on, get a master's, become an administrator. There's lots of opportunity for nurses, but it's hard work, very hard work. Yeah, it's 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 physically difficult. It's mm -hmm. it's mentally challenging, and it's emotionally mm -hmm. in a lot of practices. It's emotionally draining. It's not, yes. It's not an easy job. It's it's almost a it's almost a calling rather than a rather than a job because it's yes. It's difficult stuff. And, and, you know, patient, you're not seeing people at their best. You're dealing with people who are, you know, vulnerable and that manifests itself sometimes in mm -hmm. bad behavior. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a very, it's a very tough thing to do. Melinda, let's touch really quickly on uh, concierge medicine and what you think a, um, a physician who's going to start a concierge practice should know. Uh, I, I work with a lot of, uh, with a lot of, I, I don't work with a lot of, I know a lot of, uh, physicians who, uh, have talked about starting a concierge practice. I did work with two, 10 years ago who were looking for help with attracting patients. What are the things that most physicians miss when they're thinking about starting a concierge practice? Well, let's, let's first say what a concierge practice is because they're not all the same um, although they're, they're similar, concierge practices where a physician has a practice where people sign up to be members of the practice. They're like, it's like joining a club mm -hmm. and you pay a certain amount of money per year to have access to that physician. It may be a limited amount 
of patients that that physician will allow in. But that, that amount of money doesn't necessarily cover all the services that have to be provided. So one concern is, have you thought this through to make sure that what you're getting per member per month is going to cover it? And they still can take insurance payments for, you know, for things that are, don't fall under the what's covered under the primary care. So to answer your question, I think it's being able to think through the financial piece of this so that they can sustain the practice, all the expenses of the practice. Yeah. One of the challenges we saw, and maybe it's different now, but the minute that the docs said that they were going to set up this membership organization and certain services were going to be covered, a lot of the insurance companies were not happy with that. So have you, is it, is it possible to still be able to take insurance, even though you're doing that club membership plan? Yep, the insurance companies are amenable to that? It is. Yes, it's possible. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then what you're just, you're just going to bill the insurance at whatever the reimbursement rate is and the insurance companies will, yes. will agree. I would look it. at it separately. So you're paying for the access to the physician and certain services, right. but it doesn't exclude using your insurance. Okay. All right. Okay, Melinda. So now I'm going to ask you to take a minute and think of three things that we should take away from our time together. Think about three things that you think are important for people to remember. Uh, For those of you who are listening, we're talking to Melinda Malecki. She's a healthcare attorney. You can reach out to her in the Chicago area at 312-203-4505, 312-203-4505. Actually not exclusive to Chicago, probably all of Illinois. She'll be happy to help you. Melinda, think about three things that people should uh, should take away from our time together. While you're doing that, I'm going to remind folks that we're brought to you by My Revenue Roadmap Guide. So if you are looking for a business development plan, I've got the plan for you. All you need to do is go to revenueroadmapguide.com, enter your contact info. There you can download the Revenue Roadmap that I use with my clients to help them build their practice. I customize it for my clients. You can customize it for yourself. I'm going to give it to you for free. It's your gift for listening to the show, for watching us today. RevenueRoadmapGuide.com. Enter your contact info. Download it for free today. All right, Melinda, what are the three things that you want our listeners, you want our viewers to take away from our time together today? Okay. uh, I would say, um, you know, I review contracts nationally, you know, for all states. Oh, great. uh, my, My three takeaways would be number one, Make sure you get your contract reviewed. Do not think that you're going to be able to read a contract and understand what all the implications are of what you're signing. Number two, getting out is just as important as getting in. So you have to look at when this contract is over, what are the consequences? And I think the last thing is to think about the contract is just one piece of your overall career goal. So think of yourself as a brand and think of yourself in your next job and how you're going to be building your own brand so that you can be marketable to the next job in your specialty. And I think that's it. All right. I think that's I think that's great advice. And those of you who are listening, if you're watching, even if you're not a doctor, that's pretty good advice for everybody. Anybody. If you're going to be signing a contract, don't be a lunatic. Right. Have the contract <laughs> reviewed by a lawyer. If you're 
getting into to a job. Think about what you're going to do if that job ends. And then think about your reputation. Think about your brand as a whole. If you need help with a healthcare contract, you're a doctor, you're a nurse, you're a physician's assistant, and you need help with a healthcare contract, no matter where you are within the sound of my voice, give Melinda Malecki a call. You can reach out to her today at 312-203-4505. 312-203-4505. Melinda, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Dave. Alrighty, folks, that'll do it for this edition of the Inside BS Show. My name is Dave Lorenzo. Until tomorrow, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.